I grew up with a lot of people that would be like, I don't know, I think UK, I think England, like I think Ireland, I think. I'm like, I know like exactly where my, which town and which village, like my grandparents from. And it's not a comparison, but it's more of like, is anyone curious? Why aren't you curious? Why doesn't anyone want to know? This is So What Are You? They don't have just one culture. So even if you say you're born here, where are you actually from? It's not even speaking Pato. I mean, I know what that is. How do I recover? Make the food. Why aren't you curious? Why doesn't anyone want to know? A six-part series that explores our complex relationships to our cultural identities. I'm Melissa Houghton. You might remember Ola's voice from the previous episode. When I first told Ola about the idea for my podcast, she mentioned that she would love to talk about her interesting family story that weaves its way through Southern Italy, the United States, Venezuela, and Canada. Today's episode is all about what happens when your cultural identity isn't so easy to pin down, whether that's a result of people's perception or your own rejection of labels. Today's episode features people who are committed to exploring past the cultural status quo. It's one of those funny things where it's like, well, okay, so where are you from? It's like, well, a piece of me has been formed in many different countries around the world my entire life. Um, so I think I'm an amalgamation of all of those experiences. This is the voice of Nanduk, who we heard from in the previous episode when she discussed her connection to Toronto. She lives here now, but she was actually born in Korea and is of Sri Lankan heritage. Her father worked for the UN, so her family was rarely rooted in a single location when she was growing up. Unsurprisingly, her interpretation of the so what are you question is much more nuanced. I mean, so since birth, my family moved around every two or three years. So actually what was really different for us was when my parents decided they retired here in Canada. And then all of a sudden we knew that we weren't moving anymore. So that was actually really odd to stay put because it was just a very different experience. So up until that point, moving was was the only thing I knew. What was amazing about it and what I'm so grateful for because it's helped me professionally on so many levels is that I learned to be highly adaptable. I never felt like I was losing friends or missing friends because a lot of the a lot of my friends that I used to play with and hang out with when I was younger also came from families that were constantly sort of moving you know, every two or three years because they were in the diplomatic service or, or their parents had expat jobs. Um, I Okay, so I just used the word expat job. I have to clarify. It's a very interesting terminology and I am very conscious of, you know, the fact that there really is no such thing as an expat. We're all economic migrants <laughs> um, because there are lots of connotations, but that's probably for another podcast. <laughs> To Nidook's point, I've included a link in the show notes that dives a bit deeper into the connotations of the word expat. On another note, after talking to Nidook, I thought of another friend of mine, Helena, who I actually met through an online group on Facebook a few years ago, 
and she is an emerging filmmaker and recently, well, semi-recently, moved to Toronto after living in several countries abroad. So I was interested to hear more of her perspective as it kind of related to Naduk's in certain ways. Particularly, how do you respond when someone wants to know where you're from? It's a question that I've always struggled to answer because I don't have just one culture. I've never lived anywhere for more than five years, so at some point I was in Paris and then I moved to London. So I would say I grew up in Paris and London because those were like important years for me. Helena was born in Lyon in France. She describes Lyon as a city similar to Paris or even Toronto in that it's filled with people from many cultures. Part of my reason for wanting to even do this podcast has been trying to give myself a little bit more room to dig deeper into things that go beyond simply being from here or from there. In Helena's case, having been born in France of Cameroonian heritage, people are quick to want to pigeonhole our identity. I can't fault people for, you know, addressing others in a way that is project how they identify personally, you know? Like a lot of people, they grew up in only one place, so they don't really grasp. It's not that they don't want to accept it, but they don't really get go like grasp the fact that you can have so many different layers and different things going on. I went away to study in England and that was amazing. Uh, I was living in London and London is just a, oh my God, what a beautiful city to be living in in your 20s. So that was really, really lovely. And I fell in love. So I kind of decided to stay there. Normally it's sort of love or, or, or work that sort of anchors you in a, in a place that's not home. While living in London, Naduk started working in the international development space. Her career would take her to countries across East Africa, including Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya, and Rwanda, among others. But as a racialized woman in a mostly white field, she quickly realized how much things needed to change to make the field more representative of the communities they were serving. With my Western colleagues, I think they found it very difficult, especially when I moved into leadership, for them to acknowledge that they didn't necessarily have representative voices within their organizational structure. And it was interesting because they were also very quick to deny that they didn't have representational voices because they would always then tout a line of sort of saying, oh, but you know, we we only develop programs that are locally needed and it's informed, everything's informed from the bottom up. And you know, sure, but it's still rooted in a strategic plan that's carved out by a group of men and women who are predominantly not black, right? And to have black voices is so critically important, whether you're sitting in the UK, whether you're sitting in Canada, whether you're sitting in the US or France, wherever it may be, if you're gonna be doing work in countries that are predominantly black, that are serving a black population.
In addition to learning about the realities of the sector, she also learned about how she was perceived both on her team and out amongst other people. Some of it in ways and from others she didn't expect. I always felt like the token brown person uh, being sent into the field. And that was always very interesting because I don't think I quite realized it until a few years sort of in where I was like, wait a minute, what is going on? And it was interesting because my colleagues locally at the national level were still very deferential to me because I was South Asian. And so, you know, South Asians, Indians in particular, have a long history across continental Africa. And it's not always a pretty history. You know, there's a lot of racism within the Indian community in East Africa. And there's a lot of segregation. And, and it was very interesting because, and, and difficult actually sometimes when you're hanging out with your friends and you see this Indian auntie walk by and she's giving you cut eye. It's like, oh, what are you doing? Hanging out with them. You should be hanging out with, you know, people like us. And so what I found really interesting was that I was actually racialized by other brown people, whereas my colleagues who were black African were more accepting of me because I was also open to having those conversations where I would say, you know, do you think I'm here to save you? Like, please tell me that, you know, if I ever say anything or make any moves or or even how I'm developing programs or whatever it is I'm doing, you like, you guys need to be able to call me out on my version of, you know, colonialism, if it is whatever it is I'm bringing into this space. I was once told that I look quote-unquote generic black, or regular black, I guess. As in to say that I don't look strongly identifiable in any cultural sense, at least in this person's point of view. And I mean, whew, honestly, there's a lot to unpack there. And I don't know if I'm going to do it all today, but you've got the legacy of slavery, you've got countless ancestors who I'll likely never be able to trace because, like I said, doubtful that I'll ever do anything that even resembles an ancestry test, despite burning curiosity. Privacy concerns aside, I honestly feel like they should be free for anyone who has been systemically and violently separated from their ancestry. All of that to say, for all intents and purposes, I'm not generally read as super ambiguous or mistaken for too many other cultural backgrounds. In Toronto, people usually guess fairly quickly and correctly that my background is Jamaican. I don't think it's necessarily because I look it, but I do think it's arguably a safe bet because there's a large Jamaican population in this city. But Helena and Ola both spoke to me about having the opposite experience. Most people would not know that I'm Cameroonian. And so when I was a kid, what people would identify me as is like as West Indian and I didn't know why I understood that way later and it's linked to you know how you would recognize being African which doesn't look like you know just one way right how close your features are to whiteness your skin tone all those things I just wish people didn't misidentify me for sure or didn't decide what I am for me
Latinx. And would you say that that to an extent extends to you? And then within that, do you also get read as someone of the Latin diaspora a lot? That's a great question because there are two sides to that. My name is Ola. If people don't see it spelled out, oh, I could go on forever about this. This is my name adds this extra, you know, caveat to, to it, right? Because if you don't see it spelled out, people automatically go, Ola, Ola, or, oh, are you Spanish? But it's not H-O-L-A, it's O-L-A, which is, it's a, it's Polish for Alexandra. It's a unisex name in, in Scandinavia. It's Yoruba. You know, there's so many origins. It means wave in Spanish, like, like, a, like a title wave but it doesn't mean hello there's no h however with that when i introduce myself to someone they might jump to that and say like oh your parents named you after the greeting and i was like not really my father actually didn't even know why it, he just channeled it with that considered as well i i don't actually get read as latinx like or italian the first thing that people jump to with my brother both my brother and i is like arabic lebanese Iranian, like Persian. I've had Pakistani before, Jordanian, a lot of, yeah. My brother, Iraqi, he gets that a lot because my father looks very, you know, different from my mom too. He's from, so he's from the, like the, one of the most, pretty much the southern, most southern point of Italy. And that is extremely close to Tunisia and North Africa. So my, my paternal grandparents, have dark complexion. They have they have dark features, dark hair. There's a lot of a lot of elements there in, in their physical characteristics that would make them appear as such. And it's likely in our roots. The other day, I was talking to a friend that had done an ancestry test, and like I've we've never done that before. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm really conflicted in that, but I'm also really curious because if this pops up all the time, then I really want to know where our roots lie. At the start of the show, I mentioned Ola's family history. So let's hear her tell it. The kind of twist to my identity in terms of pre cultural preservation as well as my mother was born in Venezuela. And so that's because my uh, maternal grandparents moved around a lot. They're from Puglia, which is the heel of the boot in Italy, southern Italy. And my father's from Calabria, the toe of the boot. He's like a true Pier 21 baby, like immigrated to Halifax, came on a boat, you know, 1963, three years old, like... My grandfather worked in the mines in Sudbury. Like that's the classic, like a, like Southern Italian immigrant, you know, working class kind of story. Just because you're born somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that that's the culture that you're going to connect with. And in this case, Ola's mom is a perfect example of that. Despite the fact that her family is from Italy, having spent some formative years in Venezuela had so much of an impact on her mom's cultural identity. My mom's family moved around between, you know, southern Italy and Venezuela, lived in Chicago for a bit as well. Yeah, my grandfather had gone over to Venezuela because my, my grandmother's brother went there to live. And it was a beautiful place at the time for a lot of southern Italian people. So my mom spent a few years there as a child, but she just, just retained so much of that in her identity and identifies more as like a Latin person now too, more than anything. And so we had a bit of that growing up as well in terms of music. A lot of Latin music, a lot of Cuban music, some bossa nova reggaeton like that that's not new to me like you know it's, it's getting really big in north america now but that's like i've been listening to that for my entire life
Though some people might try to tell you otherwise, I'm pretty sure that no one can really, or at least reliably, predict the future. And if we think about this in the cultural context, for some families, landing in another country that you don't know and trying to navigate getting used to everyday life is enough to contend with. So if we think further down the line into things like whether or not you'll be able to teach your children your mother tongue or the recipes that you had growing up or to appreciate certain things that are integral to your culture don't always come to mind until in some ways it's too late. But thinking about that, is it too late to really share and find those aspects of culture? Thinking of my own family, in my dad's case, he remembers that my great-grandmother and his grandmother spoke Patois at home, but his mom didn't really do it. So for my dad, he'll speak Patois sometimes, but to be honest, most of the time, it's not something that he uses to communicate. And to be fair, it gets most strong when he's annoyed by something. But with that in mind, honestly, I would say my skills are mediocre at best. And I can't blame him because to be honest, he was raising my brother and I, so I don't necessarily think that having time to reconnect with that was his number one priority. But thinking about future generations, or maybe just because I'm getting older, there is a sense of responsibility that can come with the feeling of if you're someone who grew up with some cultural, who grew up with some cultural ties, but not necessarily ones that were super strong, we have a unique position where we can basically support the next generation in strengthening the ties that we have or kind of letting things go the way they're gonna go. It kind of reminds me of that game that some of us played growing up with broken telephone, you know, with every new transmission of the message, some of the quality is lost. And sometimes it does scare me a little bit to think about what can happen to traditions, particularly in cultures with strong oral traditions. But I also think there's a real opportunity to lean in and learn recipes, languages, meet family members, and to continue to extend the ways in which we are connected to the people who came before us. For Naduk, despite spending time in many countries growing up, her family made sure that she had a connection to her family and to her Sri Lankan culture. I think my parents made a really big effort to take us back to Sri Lanka every summer because we were so nomadic. And so going back to Sri Lanka for summer holidays was really important to build that community with family because for most of the year, you know, our support systems were friends. And that's why friends have always been very critical in my life. But to develop that sense of family came from my parents taking the time to do that every summer holiday. Language also, I think, is also really critical. My parents made a really significant effort to make sure that we learned Sinhalese. Uh, my parents are Sinhalese, and so they, you know, they, they tried to make sure that I that we could at least have conversations in Sinhalese. They attempted during the summer holidays to get us to learn how to read and write it, but if you see the script of Sinhalese, it's like a whole bunch of curly cues, right? So I was just like, you know, at the age of eight, I had zero patience for it, and all I wanted to do was go play with my cousins. For Ola, her family preserved a lot of their Italian culture at home. But even with all of that, it didn't necessarily translate into full language fluency for her. 
Although my parents uh, immigrated to Canada very young and they went to school here, they learned the language very early, but at home it was definitely preserved because we would spend a lot of time with you know our grandparents. The food was there. My first language was actually Italian. I lost it going to school when I was in kindergarten because no one spoke Italian at school and also because my father only speaks his dialect, his regional dialect. My mother is like a language arts specialist by trade, so she speaks about five languages fluently regular Italian and two dialects that of her parents and that of my dad's so I grew up just hearing so many different things and just like an evolution of language and like linguistics and sound so for me it was just like what and I think I just lost it because it wasn't practiced at home however like today I I'm like fluent in understanding and comprehension in all other forms I can speak it but my grammar is really poor For Helena, cultural preservation wasn't as straightforward. I understand all too well that it's hard to not internalize feelings of inadequacy when you don't feel like you measure up to the full level of cultural fluency that you feel like you should have or that you even just want to have. I do feel like, you know, some insecurity, some level of insecurity of not perfectly knowing like Cameroon, for example, or like not, not knowing it like the back of my hand or like not speaking the dialects that my parents speak, which is not my fault based on how I was raised. I don't think they realized they were doing that. You know, I feel like if I had stayed in Lyon, for example, like my mom and my grandma would speak it all the time. My grandma would have a friend. So I think that through that, I would have learned it. But because then we moved away, it was like, I felt angry about that as a teen. Cause I was like, not like I can go and learn it somewhere else. It's not like there's a book. And I just felt so cheated. And I think that's what happens when you're from like a hyphen nationality that you, you can have the best of both worlds, but you can also like miss a part of your identity and then it's your responsibility to try and build that back up. Also, I feel like a lot of, it, it might happen here too, but like a lot of, let's say Afro-Europeans to never doubt, you're kind of like in between cultures where like you have a certain nationality, but then you're not fully accepted wherever you were born or grew up. And then you're not necessarily accepted, you know, in your homeland. To quote Solange, where do we go from here? In fact, I think her album, A Seat at the Table, was a really perfect meditation on self, identity, and figuring out what happens with the not-so-pretty in-between feelings that we all have in some way. I think it has to start with changing how we talk about who we are. Some things are undeniable, but I feel that so much of our conversations stem around what we're not. We're not born in our homelands. We're not fluent enough in our languages. Not able to make the recipes like Granny makes. And while these things can be true for sure, We also have to recognize that we're not entirely to blame for all of that. It's not like we could pull a that's a raven and gaze into the future to know that assimilation down the road would have effects on generations to come who might not have the same need to assimilate. Obviously, thanks to the sacrifice of generations before, but it's still something to contend with. To go a little Oprah or whatever, I think what I'm trying to say is let's just be kind to ourselves. Everyone's trying to do what they're trying to do, and it's not easy. But actually though, where do we go from here? For Naduk, it's a question of not being nailed down. 
I feel because of the way that I was raised, I was afforded one of the most memorable childhoods that allowed me to recognize that home is, and this is going to sound so cliche, but home is the planet. I don't need to belong anywhere because I already belong. That sense of being rooted in a place comes from the strength of the relationships with the people that I have in the cities that I'm living in or in the communities that I'm in. For Helena and Ola, it's about continuing to connect with family. I don't really feel like I should be proud of any kind of flag. I think being proud of my identity and figuring that out is my priority. So I think my objective is like to explore that side through like my art and to make sure that there's a point where like I do go back to Cameroon and you know not only like have a holiday and enjoy it but also do research, visit certain things as an adult and document certain things and maybe having certain conversations with my family. The people who are still alive. I lost my grandmother, my dad's mother, and I feel like that's a major thing where I'm like, damn, like, there's a lot of conversation we haven't had. And she knew a lot. And you know, when, like, those elders die, a lot of times they haven't shared certain pieces of information. There's nobody else that knows. So I would love to do that within the next um, year or two. So even with my grandparents, whenever I have the opportunity, I ask them about their roots, I ask them about stories, about where they're from. And uh, my brother and I are really blessed that they're open to sharing that stuff with us and about their upbringing. So we're at the end of the episode, and before we go, I just wanted to leave you with some words that stuck with me after I interviewed Helena. And basically, as someone who's also still presently on this journey towards figuring out my relationship to my culture and to my family, this was just something that I felt was important to keep in mind. And I wanted to leave it with you as well. Do what you can to explore who you are, like every single part of it. And that takes time and be patient. That would be my advice. Is that a good advice? Yes, that's beautiful advice. (laughs) And on the next episode, we'll dive into that topic a bit deeper. What do we do when what we've always known to be true doesn't? seem to apply anymore? And what happens when one aspect of your identity feels like it puts another at risk? So What Are You was produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Melissa Houghton, with music from Fugue, Ryan Little, Silent Partner, Katza, Himalaya, and Dural. For more information about this series and to see links to some of the things I mentioned, you can visit my website, which is melissahaughton.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-H-A-U-G-H-T-O-N.com. If you're enjoying the series, please leave a review and tell your homies. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Melissa H-A-U-T-E. Thanks for listening.